Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in uh, the beginning of the book of Bamidbar, of the book of Numbers. We finished the book of Leviticus last week and unrolled the Torah scroll to do so and began the book of Bamidbar. We began the book of Numbers because we are never between studying books of Torah. We never are taking a break. So um, we finished the last sentences of, of Vayikra and began the first sentences of Bamidbar. We were in the last uh, triennial in general um, this year. And so uh, our reading for this Shabbat is at the end of Parshat Bamidbar. We're at the end of every Parsha that we read because then we're in the last third of every Parsha. I want us to look at, I want you to put your finger at the beginning of the book of Bamidbar. So chapter 1, verse 1, or verse 2, whatever it is. Yeah, chapter 1, verse 2. And we're going to go to look at the last third first and are going to go to chapter 3, verse 40. Everybody at chapter 3, verse 40? All right, does someone want to read, please? The Lord said to Moses, record every firstborn male of the Israelite people from the age of one month up, and make a list of their names, and take the Levites for me, the Lord, in place of every firstborn among the Israelite people, and the cattle of the Levites in place of every firstborn among the cattle of the Israelites. So Moses recorded all the firstborn among the Israelites, as the Lord had commanded him, all the firstborn males, as listed by name, recorded from the age of one month up, came to 22,273. All right, so we are getting a census here of all of the firstborn males of Israel from a month (coughs) up. So this is where a lot of Jewish tradition gets the idea that a human being counts from 30 days up, right? So before 30 days, there were no funeral rites for infants who died um, until now because it was traditionally understood that they weren't really fully here yet. I mean, and we know that um, this is a proof text, right, in some ways used for what for them was their real lived experience, which was often infants died for lots of reasons. So um, it really wasn't secure. You know, people didn't count that they could count this child really um, on it being around until 30 days, that then it was pretty a pretty sure thing. Um, so they're all Israelite firstborn males and all the cattle, right? The same for the cattle. <laughs> <laughs> right, at least the males came first before the cattle. All right, um, so we're gonna we're gonna get why in just a second because oh, we've had a census. We're gonna look at another census too. We've had a census before, so we're, so we're, we had a different census. We're gonna look at this census. So we're gonna continue at forty four. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites in place of all the firstborn among the Israelite people, and the cattle of the Levites in place of the cattle. And the Levites shall be mine, the Lord's. And as the redemption price of the 273 Israelite firstborn over and above the number of the Levites, 
take five shekels per head. Take this by the sanctuary weight, 20 geras to the shekel, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are in excess. So Moses took the redemption money from those over and above the ones redeemed by the Levites. He took the money from the firstborn of the Israelites, 1,365 sanctuary shekels. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons at the Lord's bidding, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay. So what just happened? We took a, we took a counting of all of the firstborn male Israelites and accounting of the firstborn cattle of the Israelites. Then you have to know how many Levites there are because what's happening here? There's one Levite serving God in place of one firstborn Israelite, right? So, so why do Levites have to take the place of a firstborn Israelite? What's up with that? Only the Levites can serve. Uh, the Kohanim, the Levites, will be serving in the temple service. But what does that have to do with firstborn Israelites? Because they're not allowed to serve. So then, why are they here? Who cares about them? Well, before the firstborn was dedicated. To ah, okay. So, Kol <laughs> everything that opens the womb belongs to God. Every firstborn, everything belongs to God. And that means you can't touch it, you can't have it, you can't use it. It belongs to God. Which meant that every firstborn Israelite was supposed to serve God and be in divine service forever. Um, God is not so interested, kind of like the Israeli army, uh, realizing maybe it's not the best idea in the world to take every single one that's supposed to be offered for service. Um, so God says, you know what? I'm going to take the Levites instead of the firstborn Israelite males, the tribe of Levi. So that's going to leave an overage, turns out. You have this many Levites to redeem this many Israelites, but there's more Israelites than Le- than Levites, right? So you've got an excess that aren't redeemed. So what are we going to do about that? They're supposed to go serve the divine, but the divine just wants Levi instead. So you got an overage. What are you going to do about that? God says, so for every one of them, here's the amount of shkalim, the amount of silver that needs to be given to the temple, the sorry, the tabernacle at this point in our story, the tabernacle for divine service, and that redeems those extra Israelites that there are no Levites to redeem. The money will redeem them. And they are now free to be regular people. Can you talk about that word redeem as to what really that means? You hear it so much and redemption. It's a very interesting... Christianity. Yeah, it's it's a it's an so redemption so to redeem. Yep. Somebody remembers the Lawrence Kushner piece that I love to point to here, right? Um, this is the Hebrew Shoresh. Um, so to redeem, legal, a goel, the one who redeems. So, um, so. We've had this conversation before. I'll just go over it briefly. Uh, that 
when we redeem something, we exchange it and it becomes what it's supposed to have been all along. So when we redeem the Hebrews from slavery, we are turning in the slave and getting the free person. That's what they were supposed to have been. Getting it back? Sometimes it's not getting it back. It's that it's been something, and now, but it's never supposed to stay that. It's supposed to, it represents something else. So the coupon that is 50 cents off a can of tomato soup, right? The piece of paper with all that printing on it is not the point. The coupon is not supposed to remain in your drawer as a piece of paper. You're supposed to redeem it. When you redeem it, you give it over and you and it becomes what you were supposed to get, what it was supposed to be all along, which is two quarters in your pocketbook. What about Pidyon Haben? So Pidyon, that's exactly what Pidyon Haben is. So, so we're redeeming by giving over and you get, right, so there, there's, this, there's an exchange happening, right, that, that allows the thing to be what it's really supposed to be. So is there a sense of putting things right? Yes. So there's nothing wrong with a coupon, right? But, th- but it says on there, if you're going to keep the coupon, it's only worth... Point zero 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 one percent of a cent, or something like, or point zero 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 one cent, right? Meaning, if it's going to stay like this, it's worthless. It, that's not the intention, and it doesn't won't do anything. When you redeem it, then it it takes its right place in the world. But you can keep a bunch of coupons in your drawer. But then wouldn't the better analogy be the old silver certificates and gold certificates that we used to have? We had paper money that said on them, you can take this $1 bill to any bank, exchange it for $1 worth of silver. Yes. So there, that, there, that's a redemption of equal value. I mean, the, coup- the coupons only have value when you actually redeem them. The money has value either way. Mm-hmm. Well, the paper itself. I the mean, paper has value. The paper has, well, but it only has value if you redeem it. But once only upon a time, redeem. the paper didn't have any value until you went to the bank and got your silver. It's just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper. So that that's the same as the coupon. It's a piece right. of paper until you take it somewhere where it is exchanged for what it was supposed to be. Uh, there is a sense that you're... When you say I've been redeemed, that you you're going to one state to a higher state, that you're thank there's a thankfulness to it. You've been redeemed. Yeah. Okay. I'm just I want to be careful about higher, and I'm not saying we can't use that. It doesn't get used that way. But 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 this is is not that. It's I'm not saying it's not better. But if I but if I am, let's say, taken into indentured servitude, somebody is supposed to redeem me. I, I'm not going to a higher state than I was before. I'm, I'm going back to that state that I'm supposed to be. I was dislocated from that. I understand. Uh, tell, I, maybe I'm wrong, but when, when I see the word redeemed, a person being redeemed, it seems to me like they've gone from one situation 
to that a better, a better. So what we have to always look at here first is how does Torah use it? We don't see people being talk about being. I've been redeemed in Torah. There is it's not used as a metaphor. You have saved me from my enemy is what the Psalms uses as a metaphor. I've been saved. Adonai Yeshuati, right? God is my salvation, it, or delivered from danger. Um, I've been redeemed is not a biblical metaphor that I'm aware of for that sense of having kind of changed to a better, higher. Ah, okay. And I'll tell you, if I think it's Christian, it could be that you know I've been redeemed. You know, normally I don't look to pull out my phone, but sometimes a little supplemental, you know, text study. So the first definition of redemption in what I just googled was. The act of saving or being saved from sin, error. Okay, so stop. So stop right there. That's where I was going. So because that's Christian, that is not Jewish. That's where that's where I was going. When you said, you know, we hear I've been redeemed. Yeah. It's redeemed from from us for us. That metaphor is from slavery. For Christians, it is from sin. So. There is no relationship between redemption and sin in Judaism. None. It is in Christianity. So we, we, we talk about being redeemed from slavery. The slavery that Christianity talks about is the enslavement to the condition of original sin. The human condition is that we are sinners. And so there was this redemption, but the ultimate redemption comes when Christ offers himself on the cross. That that becomes the ultimate redemption, which is the one that matters, which is from sin. That, that is a reconstruction of Geulah that, that is totally not where Judaism went. What is Judaism's word that goes with sin? Hate. Chet uh, in Hebrew, but it's not redemption from sin. It's teshuva. It's it's repentance. Is one word. What's the other word? Return. Atonement. There's atonement and repentance from and and ultimately forgiveness from sin. So the the nature, like in the Jewish view would be the nature is not sin, like you don't come out like a sinner. Correct. In any way, shape, or form. Correct. But you do come out a slave. (laughs) (laughs) No, we were slaves. We were redeemed from slavery. Every one of us gets born free because we were redeemed. So we are born beholden. Uh We're not born guilty. We are born in debt Uh to God for redeeming our ancestors from slavery. We are never to forget that. Right. Just because you're born without sin doesn't mean you're born good. You are born you're both. Born you are born innocent and you are born both good and with the capacity to do bad. We learned this in Eden. Mm-hmm. Amy, it's sort of reminiscent of the discussion we had in Leviticus about the way we interpret abomination. <clears throat> that's right. Everybody yeah. thought that's a sin or it's horrible. That's it's right. Just, it's different. That's right. And that's... And that is exactly what happened. Because we live in a Christian context, we hear redemption, right, with a certain 
layers, you know, and overtones to it that are not there in the biblical record. Get law redemption is always good. It is always good. You want to be redeemed, right? Because that's what's supposed to happen, and it's that's a good thing. It's it's different than it was horrible. You were sinners, and now you're redeemed from that. Right? So I'm sorry. One more question on redemption, because as I use it, I, mean, I may say. Rabbi Amy taught me, or I may say something, and then I would redeem Rabbi Amy as my teacher for sharing that with me. So there's there's a terminology where you redeem the other person who maybe you're quoting or sharing something. And what is that sense of redeem? Well, that's what I'm asking you. I've never heard it that way. (laughs) I've never heard redeeming someone else. (laughs) I don't know that use of redeem. Yeah. Does anyone know that use? No. No? no? Okay. Right. If this were, right. So, But this is a verb that doesn't have to do with El, God. It does not. Okay. In, in this portion, is there any significance between the people who don't need to be redeemed because they're counted and those who have to be redeemed? No, that, not that we know of. It, it was no, just one Levite per Israelite. Then there's extra. You're going to get money for those. There's no difference because in either case they're redeemed. Right. The whole idea is to free them from service and let them go back to their regular lives and let the Levites take their place in service. Yeah. This is the first form of fundraising. This is one of the first forms of fundraising. <laughs> Count heads and charge them per head. There you go. And give the money to the sanctuary. I'm totes down with that. How, how is, we call it dues. <laughs> I was going to say. How is one Levite chosen by the Levites? I mean, one Israelite chosen and the rest left over. I mean, one per Levite. It's one per Levite. They don't assign them. Okay. Just count. If you've got 50 Levites and you have 100 Israelites, you have 50 left over that you have to redeem with money per head. And it's not who, it's just how many. Who pays the money? Who decides who pays the money? So all the Israelites oh, they, they contributed, and it, and it says here, right, take five shekels per head, take this by the, and give them. So they, here's the total. The Israelites have to bring that money to redeem their 50, their 20-something, 273 extras. Okay. A, a little bit earlier, uh, God tells Moses not to count the Levites. Ha-ha. Okay. And yet, <laughs> and yet two, and we know there's 273 excess firstborn, and there's it says just before that there's 22,273 firstborns. So can't from that one infer that there's 22,000 Levites? Yes. If that's the case. Yes. Why do they need to count them? Why did they? Well, well but, why were they told not to count them? Since we know how many there were. <laughs> God had already counted. God might know, but there's actions that we have to do, right? So we're going to look at this idea of counting and who gets counted and who doesn't get counted and how and why and all of that. What is the name of the book that we are in? 
Bamidbar. Look at your English translation of that, and what does it say? Numbers. Numbers. Remember, the English always comes from the Latin, right? So the Latin translation of the name of this book is Numbers. Why might that be? Census. Censuses. Sensei. Counting. That is the name of the book because that's how this business begins is with different censuses. Is it possible that the numbers are written by bookkeepers? The Abacus of the Sky? That's right. Can I, so... Moses gets the money, gives it to Aaron and his sons. Yep. And then what? What happens to this money? Like what, what, I don't understand. It's used for the sanctuary, for divine purposes. They're, they're going to, <laughs> right, there's stuff they need to acquire or procure. Or air conditioning. It, air conditioning. Um, <laughs> so, so it's, it's like the idea of like the other, the 273 are already in service, so they don't need yeah. to be redeemed in a sense? No, two, the 273 need yes. to be redeemed because there's not enough Levites to redeem all of the firstborn Israelites. So 273 Israelites need to be redeemed with money. I see. Okay. Great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> why do they have such a different name in English? I know why each is there, but why didn't we have <coughs> parallel names either pick the numbers theme or the Bami theme and why can't we have the same I have a lot of trouble I know all the Hebrew names and I, I never remember what the English one is that parallels because it has nothing to do with the Hebrew name right um, because we didn't do it we had nothing to do with that that was Christians oh, okay. but why did they keep that because we speak English <laughs> and I mean, truly, it's because we speak English. And so, you know, when we pick a name that English speakers can access, it ain't Bamidbar. <laughs> right? So you could have called it in, in our English translation, In the Wilderness. But a lot of times, the, the reason the Hebrew book is called, what the Hebrew book is called is because it's one of the first words in the book. So it's not necessarily, it doesn't make any more sense necessarily than trying to get at the theme of the book or the theme of the beginning of the book and call it that. It's just how we did it. Well, in other languages like French, or they also use the, the Latin. The Latin. Latin. So is it yes. Called whatever the French is for numbers. Whatever, right? What French is for numbers? For yes. Yeah. I mean, so what, what, is, what is Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Leviticus. <laughs> Deuteronomy. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying. I mean, it's like Genesis. Well, it's sort of from the first words of the first book, so you kind of get that. Exodus, I kind of get that. So now Numbers, I kind of get that. Well, but Genesis, like, it, you know, has nothing to do with the first words of the book. Like, it's kind of like something about, but what, but it's like, what, what does that mean, right? So. Exodus is not one of the first words. Exactly. Right. So these are the names. Yeah. Right, but it's kind of a central like, but what theme. is Leviticus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Levites. Yeah, yeah. The book of the priests. The manual for the priests. What was I doing? The instruction book. And Deuteronomy. I was writing on the board. Oh, Right. Okay. Got it. Thank you, Bert. I was writing on the board. Good catch, Bert. Right? All right. So this Hebrew... Which, if you put it into Latin consonants, is this. 
Okay, so this is the Hebrew roots, right? The three-letter root. Most we have a tripartite root for most Hebrew words and concepts. Pakad. So when we look at this business of numbering, the rabbis actually called this book in many places pikudim, countings, numbers. So in that case, it's the same as what they did, right, with the Latin, um, but it's not the actual technical name, but it's how the rabbis related to it as pikudim, countings, numberings. Um, so this, this word pakad, right, we see in the, uh, we see in Torah when we come to the counting of Levi. So just hold, hold that. But go to your notes that I just gave you and go to chapter 1, verse 2. And we see there, Bert, read for us. Take the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their ancestors' houses, according to the number of names, every male by their poles. Every male by their what? It says poles. Okay, got it. I'm, I'm just reading. <laughs> green book, how does it translate it? Head by head. Head by head. Because what we're dealing with here is a translation of the word Gilgul. So the question is, does that mean head or whatever that you said? Pole. P-O-L-L, not P-O-L-E. Right, but it's like, okay. Um, it's like pole packs. So what does pole mean? Pole, well, it must mean head packs. I mean, so pole, pole means head? I mean, when they used to be, where there used to be pole packs, it right. would be a, like a tax to vote. So pole means head? <coughs> or person? Per head. Right. So, so I don't know. I, so I'm not, <laughs> not going to work with pole so much until somebody knows what it means. Um, be, because... The rabbis are going to have a field day with translating Gugulotam, right? So we're struggling with what does it mean exactly. So the rabbis see this as an engraved invitation to have some spiritual fun and take some other kind of meaning um, from this. So let's, let's look at this. The language for, what did we say in English? Take a census of, right? What is the Hebrew of that, Rita. Verse 2. Take a census. In Hebrew, it is. Se'u et rosh kol adat b'nei Israel. What does that literally mean? Se'u? No, but. Travel, like move it. That's sa. This is this is from No Se Avon Vafesha Bechatabenake, who lifts from us sin. Seu, lift up. Et Rosh, Kol Adat B'nai Israel, lift up the head of every member of the congregation of Israel. Now is that head? The physical head? Rosh. Is that like the household head? Rosh. The household, it's not the household head. 
Lift up the head of every member of the congregation of Israel. That sounds like Adad Israel, right? Stand tall. Stand tall. Very interesting. So, yes, it's a euphemism for count. We're not denying that. The rabbis want to look at, but why is that the euphemism rather than count? Right? That for them, there's a teaching here. When we're going to look at who's here and we need to know something about quantity, what we're doing essentially is saying, stand tall, lift your head, right? And be counted. You count. That is a very important way of understanding what's happening here, which is the opposite of what counting often means, which is a dehumanizing, minimizing of our individual uniqueness and is about, um, you, you just become a number. It's reductive, right? You, you stop being a unique human being for which the whole entire universe was created and become one of 16,073. Does it mean there were other people there other than the people of Israel? Well, you're saying, you're Israelite. No, this is God talking to Moshe as regards the people of Israel. Lift up the head of every member of the congregation of Israel, which means count them. But only the males. Correct. Yes. Because unless you're saying female and children, it always means males. The, the Adah is always men. Always. You have to say, and your women... And your children, if it's all y'all. Otherwise, y'all is the men. All y'all is is the women and children. You know, you're talking about stands all y'all matter because well, all those other people are are right. So, so we could we could go there, but in general, like what the rabbis are doing is they're not going to the issue of gender, because it's not an issue for them, because it's still mostly men all the time. Who matters? The men. So that is, that is a topic that is absolutely worthy of a class and a discussion, but we're just going to step away from that and look at what the rabbis go to is what's the teaching for all of us about why Torah uses this language? Why does Judaism use this language? Okay, so, so we've got the idea of dignity. We've got the idea of lifting up the head, Right? Um, every male according to their Gilgul sphere according to their sphere their head so you are counted as regards your head and there's a lifting up and a dignifying of the head in this counting. When God counts, it is an endearment. It is a good thing. If you're going to count instead of God, it's always bad. It goes really badly. Really badly. Hmm? You said if you're going to count instead of When God counts us, it is a loving, dignified counting. The, the, the rabbis... Um, liken it to when you have a precious collection that you want to count and, and look at everyone, right? Like when you want to go count your collection, you want to go look at your stuff, you want to, you want to lovingly count every single one that you've collected. That that is how God counts. When we count, it's a disaster. If you are an Orthodox Jew, 
would you say that only the men are counted because the women are busy with the children or they're in labor or they're making dinner for you? Yes, so only the men are counted because women are exempt. Women are exempt from any mitzvah that has to do with time. Any mitzvah about time, women are exempt. You don't count someone who's exempt because you want to count the people who are obligated. If you skip someone who's obligated, then they can't fulfill the mitzvah. So that's the way it stays... It stays... um, discriminatory is because when I said how come I can't have an aliyah to Torah nowhere does it say you can't have an aliyah to Torah because Amy you would take the place of a male who is mitzvah who is obligated do you see how that works to reinforce the system right it's not that you can't have an aliyah you're right it doesn't say anywhere you can't have an aliyah you can't but it doesn't say that you can't but if we were to give women an aliyah, you're taking it away from men who are commanded. So you're, you're going to disallow a man to fulfill his obligation because you want an aliyah? We're obligated. We don't have a choice. So that's how that system stays uh, in effect. And why is it a minion? Because a minion is dependent on time. Shachrit, Mincha, and Ma'ariv are all dependent on time. And so women are exempt from davening three times a day in a minion. And if you're exempt, you don't count. The, the word count in English has two, these two different meanings. Count in the arithmetic sense, and you count means you're worthy. Correct. Is, is, is the same meaning in Hebrew? So that is exactly what we're looking at. So, so, so your question is a good one. I'm not avoiding it. But, but count... That's what Se'uet Rosh is here. Lift up the head. That's what we're exploring. What's the terminology for count? And then the other one we're going to look at is pakad. Count. So you're exactly on the right track. We're doing it, just it's hard to... There's not a direct translation that, that we don't have to unpack. <laughs> so we just unpacked one translation of count. Is Se'uet Rosh, lift up the head. Okay, so then... And then, Atam, each according to their... Head. The rabbis take this to mean every single head. What does the head contain? The brain counts. And revelation was given to however many heads. And the rabbis say, why does it say Lagugulatam? It could just say how many Israelites were standing there. Why is it Lagugulatam according to their head? Because had one of those heads been missing, the revelation of Torah would have been incomplete. If one person's perspective on the Torah that was being given was missing, revelation would be incomplete. So what they're saying is there is no one understanding of Torah. It's not complete. What I have to say, lovely. It's not complete until everyone in this room participates in this piece of Torah. It's not fully revealed until everybody's perspective is taken into account. That is a radical... That is a radical approach to religion, isn't it? This is why the Talmud is a bunch of arguments between the rabbis. Because they really believed... Everybody's perspective was important. 
And the majority wins always. The majority wins. The halakha goes according to the majority. And the minority opinion is recorded. This half of the room said blue because it's the color of the sky. This half of the room said red because it's the color of the earth. And we come from the earth. But the creator comes from the blue. And there's a fight that goes on for weeks. And there's more people over here. So it's red. So it could, it could just say the decision is we are created from the earth. So it's red. Right? Because, and that's how the halakha goes. Okay. Could have stopped there. But that's never how it's done. It says, and there was another perspective. The minority opinion said, blue, because the sky is blue, and God is Bashamai, and God is in the heavens, and so we should go with blue. So not only the opinion, but the reasoning for that opinion is recorded. We do that with the Supreme Court. There you go. They learn from us. So why, like, why is that so huge? You know, to me, it's because they understood that at any other point, blue might be the prevailing opinion. So because the, because the majority went for red, doesn't mean blue is wrong. And the discussion could continue at a later date where blue could be the majority. That's exactly the point. So just think about that for a second. They build into their own legal system the recognition that we may not be right. Our decision isn't necessarily right. It's the decision of the majority. And there has to be a decision, or how are we going to know what the halakha is? So you have to know, can I eat it or not? Because Martha Schwartz, at the end of the day, doesn't really care about red or blue. She cares, can I serve it to my family? So it's also not, not just that you're... You may not be right, but there is something to learn from the minority. 100%. Because I can be sitting on the red side, but you know what? Something. It's interesting to know that there's a, a, a body of thought out there that says that you know we come from the heavens. That, and, and it's that interesting that you say body of thought. When we read Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, right, a lot of the arguments get into the house of Hillel says and the house of Shammai says. They're always, by the way, you know, arguing. Um, and so Beit Hillel means... The house of Hillel, what it really means is a body of thought associated with the positions and perspective of Rabbi Hillel and the body of thought associated with that of Shammai. And it was very valuable to the rabbis to know both. You weren't smart as a Talmud scholar if you didn't know both positions. Right, and that's why it's so interesting in this day and age, people focus so much on the Supreme Court, and you want it liberal, you want it conservative, but you know what? Like, take an opinion on something interesting. Read the minority side. Right. And, like, if you really are sort of being true to yourself, it's like, see what the other side has to say and learn from them. And, you know, it's... Like, people don't. They, people, they think they're right, and they would love to have... You know, the other side go away. Liberals or several, seven conservatives, like that's it. And shut out the other side. Right. And that's just not Jewish. It is about arguing it through and exactly that hearing, really hearing and understanding the other side. And, and need, knowing that we need to make a decision and there's going to be a, a winner and a loser. That's just how it is when we have to make a decision. But the loser isn't wrong necessarily. I mean, sometimes they may be. If they stole something, they're guilty. Right? You know, that's wrong. But it's not always a moral right. issue. And sometimes we just have to say, is it kosher or isn't it? Right? Do you need two dishwashers or don't you? And there's not a right and a wrong. It's just this is how we're going to do it. And I think that's radical 
for all the reasons Rick said. And when you're the ones adjudicating to say we're not necessarily right, we're just more, <laughs> right? That, that's amazing to me. So is there something in here that sort of has that temporal kind of feeling to it? I know that you want to record this, you want to, we're going to make a decision to do this, which is great. But is there something that's sort of saying that, yeah, it's living and breathing, and there might be another time that it will go the other way? Is there something other than just like what we might um, infer from it? Yeah. They, yes. That's in Talmud, right? It's not here. Okay. It's later. But the whole... The whole story with, you know, Lobashamayim, he, you know, Torah's not in heaven anymore. You remember that story? I told you that story. So it's not in heaven anymore, meaning, God, please get out of the way. You have nothing really to say about this because times have changed. And we, it's our job as the community to decide what the halacha is now. Right? So there is a suggested, it's what we decide now. And that, and then there's always change, right? And they argue across the generations in the Talmud, by the way. And then the we is also different because... hundred percent. Versus or whatever, you know, the we is different there as well. hundred percent. And rabbis overturn decisions. Mm-hmm. Rabbis overturn all decisions all the time. Because something's changed. Because we eat quinoa. <laughs> because we, we can eat quinoa now on Pesach. Linda? And I was always wondered, though, I mean, you know... Talmud is here, and we open the book, and we read the Talmud, and argue what, what's there. And I think you just answered my question, but is there a body now that says in Yes. The yes. So there, so it depends now on your denomination. The conservative, there's a law committee of the conservative movement that just ruled that we can eat quinoa on Pesach and legumes on Pesach, right? So that was a ruling that now all conservative Jews can say, okay, we now can eat that on Pesach. Because the halacha has changed. The law committee reviewed everything and met, and it's changed. Okay, so they will follow that. But other communities have a Rebbe that they follow. Mm-hmm. And it's what the Rebbe says. And you go to your Rebbe and ask. And if your Rebbe doesn't know, that Rebbe goes to that the other Rebbe, the bigger Rebbe, until you get all the way to whoever the top of that That's you. order is. <laughs> so, so in, in other Jewish iterations, that would be me. Because we are non-halachic, you don't need an adjudicator. As a reconstructionist community, we would absolutely reject the idea that I am the authority. The authority rests with the community. I am the facilitator and teacher for the community so that the community might make an educated decision. But I would not be the adjudicator. But doesn't the, the reform movement has response They've got volumes and volumes of, you know, discussions, halakhic discussions. But within the reform movement, who considers those halakhic rulings binding on anybody? In reform Judaism, the authority rests with the individual. Right. I so decide so even if the CCAR, my practice even if the has guidelines. guidelines. Okay. We have guidelines, too. Right. right. David Teutsch just published a whole series on Jewish reconstruction Jewish practice. So we have very clear, very articulated, very detailed guidelines. But the, this community in Reconstructionist Judaism will decide what of those they do for kashrut or anything else. In the reform movement, it's like, I'll eat whatever I want. So at this time, there's really one body and everybody's sort of going along with whatever this thing is? What time are you talking about? When numbers is happening. This, know, like, nothing here has to do with a decision. 
The authority is Moses, who gets his information from God. Okay. So there's nobody saying, hey, I'm, I'm the Reformed Jew. <laughs> no. No, I'm thinking, no. maybe. At, at this case, in, in, I think maybe I was a sinner. In, in, in their time, it, in, it, and we have to remember, as Reuben always helps me remember, is it real time or is it the story's time? In the story's setting, the only choice was, am I going to obey or not obey? And this generation never gets it right. They die in the wilderness because they can't figure it out. They, they disobey. They blow it over and over and over again. That's the main struggle in this setting. They diso- so are you saying they disobey like if you, if you decide, yeah, I'm not going to go this way, then you're in the wilderness and you're screwed because you're by yourself? No, God says, you know, Moshe's going to be with me for 40 days and 40 nights. He's gone a little too long, and they make a golden calf. They they, They blow it. They start complaining. Yeah, you give us manna. Terrific. Where's the quail we used to eat? Where's the leeks and onions we knew in Egypt? Right? They they continually blow their... Right. All right. Is there... Traditional. I've gotten through one pasuk. <laughs> it's just. I wish we had three hours for Torah study. There were two main schools of thought, like Hillel and Shammai, and Shammai was the more strict and punctilious one. And does that go on today? Yes. Yeah, there are rabbis who want to be what we call makil, making things easier. And those who are machmir, those who are, you know, wanting to be stronger, always. So you, you kind of, and so Jews figured out, if I need this chicken to be kosher, because we can't afford another one for Shabbos, they knew what rabbi to go to. Right? They go to a rabbi who's makehill, if they can. You know, they go to an authority that's makehill. Right, but if somebody else wants to prove that Sarah's stepping out again of wine, I'm going to one who's machmir. Right, to say absolutely wearing those two colors together is unacceptable. Right, but they're, Wrong. Still, they're still doing that today. I mean, in America. Yeah, definitely. But she was asking, does it exist within Jewish tradition? And I'm saying, yes, it continues to exist. Contemporaneously, um, Tom's kidney donor, his cousin who lives in Spot is with Vatslav, um, you know, mm-hmm. and before she gave her kidney, she checked with the Rebbe all of the controversy swirling around it. So people do this. Yes, know. absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. The argument for that is that you have people who are, you talked about yourself as a guide, who are educated, who have dealt with these questions, and that there's an advantage to seeking that as opposed to trying to figure out absolutely everything oneself. Correct. Who's got the time? Correct. Or the intellect. And and we count on specialists right. in areas, right? So that and then that's so the rabbi is a specialist in this stuff. Yeah, and but that's the tension between halachic and non-halachic. Which is the tension? The, well, just the the question of you know, on the one hand, if you accept, if you want authority of rabbis. Then you're saying, I'm going to go to people who have studied this, et cetera, et cetera, and I'm going to follow that. The other piece is, I'm going to try and figure it out all out myself, okay, which I might be able to do or I might not be. And that is, I'm saying, there's a tension between those two poles, and there are advantages and disadvantages. But it is, it is compromised. For example, is, is an organization of 
Orthodox Jewish scientists, so they deal with technology issues that should try to fit within, you know, shouldn't it be a Shabbos oven, what do you do about an elevator, all that stuff that deals with technology. So they do have an intermediary between the very strict and the side-by-yourself. Yes, but this is the Reconstructionists, you don't decide, you can go and consult. You may not get the answer. But, but you don't consider it binding. Correct. And you're not obliged to consult. Cor- correct. Yes. But you are obliged to, fo- to know and follow the agreements of the community. No one should be bringing a turkey and cheese sandwich into this building, right? So that you can do whatever you want, and it's not binding whatever I say, but it is considered binding to be part of the community, not to breach the community's understanding of their shared decision. Sounds like democracy to me. Sounds a lot like democracy. Kaplan loved being American. All right, we're going to look at this other um, sentence because we've gotten through one. So we're going to the second sentence. Mi benesrim shana from 20 years old and up. Kol all who go out to war. Be Israel of Israel. Tif kadu otam, this word. Tif kadu otam. Pakad them. All right, we're not going to translate it, Reuben. We're not going to say what it means. Pakad them. All right? Where, where are we? Verse 3. The sentence just after verse 2 that we read. I just went, I just, just going on in the text. Tif kadu otam. Do this pokade thing to them. Litzvotam. According to their. Um, tribe, right? They're, they're yeah. Ata ve'aron, you and Aaron. Okay? So you've got it written here actually on your sheet that I gave you, right? From 20 years old and upward. This is everyone who kol yotzei tzava, those who go out to fight. That's who you're counting here. And they're told specifically not to count Levy, to Richard's point. Do not count the Levium. You're counting only the fighting force of Israel. But does that mean, uh, what would they do for somebody who is male, over 20, and lame? Don't know. Too ill to Don't know. fight. Don't know. Don't know. I don't know if it's eligible it says or arms. able. So it, it might be about eligibility. It might be about um, actual ability. I, I don't know. So what is host? There's a number that by their host. So um, mine says tribe. This translation I'm looking at says tribe. So Adonai Tzvaot, God of hosts, right? So that word Sava changes. Tzvaot changes group, you know, some kind of rep, you know, representative group. Um, all right. When we get the when we get the commandment to uh, deal with Levi, right? They they why are they not going out to war, the Levites? They are dealing with sacred stuff. They have other things to do. They have other things to take care of, right? And when Levi is counted, we get this language, 
Pakod et bnei Levi, right? What we just looked at. Count Pakod. Now I, I should have said I wasn't going to translate. Pakod et Levi. You're going to Pakod Levi. All right. So Pakoding Levi. Doesn't it just sound like a great novel? <laughs> Pakoding Levi. <laughs> right. Defending Jacob, Pakoding Levi. Um, we're going to turn to our great teacher, our esteemed teacher, Aviva Zornberg. Yes. And you're going to look at page 11. Hopefully I did not cut off the page numbers. Oh, good. Every now and then I manage to work the copier. I have to tiptoe, though, because when it hears me coming, like, disaster. Like, when it knows it's me, so I have to, like, be very quiet. All right, so we're going to look at her, her business here on page 11. Drop down to the middle of the second-to-last paragraph. God's love, it seems, is at its keenest in two opposite situations, in celebration and after catastrophe. Because this is when, I'm just telling you, um, this is when we're counted. We get counted in celebration, and when there's a plague and half the Israelites are killed, it's like, count the survivors. That's what happens. So we're in two opposite directions, right? In celebration and after catastrophe. Counting punctuates both presence and absence. In a way, it, it is a way of paying attention. For Rashi, loving attention to the individual within society. So rather than being a way to dehumanize and reduce us, says Rashi, I gave you this drash already, you know, it's about Su'u at Rosh, lift up their head. It's about the individual counts in, in society. It is striking that the word pakad, which is used some 20 times to refer to the act of registering in the census, what we just read. We just saw pakad happen a couple of times, right? It generates a larger field of meaning that includes paying attention, appointing, visiting, seeking, desiring, being interested as well as depositing, committing, and trusting. Listen to all of those meanings of this one Hebrew verb. At the same time, pakad refers to absence. It attends to a loss. For example, after the battle against the Midianites at the end of the book, the pakudim, those appointed to make the count of the survivors, report to Moshe, your servants have made a check of the warriors in our charge, and not one of them is nifkad, missing. Fascinating, right? This is where Hebrew is just so gorgeous. None of them is nifkad, the passive form of pakad. None of them is not counting. None of them is not counted, meaning the double negative means they're all here. So pakad means both presence and noting an absence. Present or accounted for, and that's the military term used today. Right, present and accounted for, or accounted. meaning I'm not missing. In, in English, those are completely opposite <laughs> words. In Hebrew, which is why I didn't, I was resisting translating, 
right, when I was talking to Reuben, is because it both means present and something about absence. I'm not absent. Those are the same word in Hebrew. The paradoxical meanings of pakad play off one another. Go down. A space has been left empty, and the one who pays attention notices a gap when we're using pakad as something about an absence. You have to pay attention, the positive form of pakad, to notice someone's missing. Yes? The other use of that word. To count, then, is to tally, to tell, to recount those who are present and or those who are absent. So that taking a head count may have its sinister as well as its gratifying significance. So some might say, yay, 360 people survived the plague. But the other side of that is, yeah, well, God got 275 of them. 275 got gone, those evildoers. So it's both, it can have both a sinister, right, and a, you know, a better, <laughs> what, is, what is the opposite of sinister? What's not sinister? Well, what she's saying is it can have, it can either be a satisfactory, gratifying thing counting, or a more, counting can be sinister. Right? It can have a sinister side to it. Look at the Nazis. Uh, you know, it's got, they kept records. They love to count who they murdered. Right? In that case, it's not a good counting. It's a sinister counting. They explicitly put the number on them. Right? It's because you, that's all you were, was a number. You counted. You counted, you know, as another tick on their, you know, charnel house. Right? It, you know. All right. Um, we don't have time, so I wanna, I'm going to skip to where do I want to go to. Okay, this this blew me away. All right, go to the middle of page 13. So talking about the individual and the community, counting. Each individual counts, but also the community, you're getting a total number. You're getting not just each individual, which is important, but you're also getting... The total. So it's about the individual and about the community. So going to the middle of the, sec- the middle paragraph on 13, she's talking about uh, Annie Dillard. She cites the figures released by the Hubble Space Telescope. Quote, there are maybe nine galaxies for each of us, 80 billion galaxies. Each galaxy harbors at least 100 billion suns. In our galaxy, the Milky Way, there are 400 billion suns, give or take 50%, or 60 suns for each person alive. And again, they say there is a Buddha in each grain of sand, the universe granulated, astronomers say, into galaxies. How can one individual count? You take in, like, Take that in for a second. It's like, we know all of this, and our tradition continues to assert every human being is created, B'Tselem Elohim. With all these kabillions of stars and galaxies, we are, we are, be, forget nothing. We're b- below nothing, <laughs> right? Well, no, but the fact that we can even apprehend those numbers means we're 
Exactly right. Whether we actually know what any of that just meant or not, right? Um, numbers mean survival, power, blessing, but they also carry an undertow of melancholy as each of us becomes a grain of sand, less than a speck among the immensities of the heavens. And yet, in the face of that granular reality, the prophet Isaiah cries, lift high your eyes and see who created these, who sends out their host by count, who calls them each by name. Because of God's great might and vast power, not one fails to appear. A relation in which God names each star as God counts it as a relation of love, of appreciating its singularity. So, Zornborg, as always, lifts up the gorgeousness of, of our Parsha that can easily be seen as a military count because they're getting ready to conquer the land of Israel before they blew it. Right? They're on their way right now to go conquer Israel. And so they need to know their fighting force. Okay, fine. And Levi is going to serve and you got to redeem. So it's very easy to see as just this exchange and this right utilitarian kind of thing. But looking at, at the language for counting, looking at how that's treated by the rabbis. You know, Zornberg does a beautiful job of pointing to other parts of our tradition and our sacred, um, you know, texts, you know, to, to make it very clear that for us, it is never reductive. Ever. It is about each human being having their own role. Pakad is also about a role. That's why we said the Levites weren't counted because they had their own role. That that Pakad is also about having a role, having a job in the world, whatever that is. If it's to take care of a sick grandparent, if it's to babysit a grandchild routinely, like we have a role, and that is how Su'u et Rosh Kol Israel, that is how we bring dignity to every single member of the people of Israel, is that we understand everyone has their role, and they don't have to be and shouldn't be the same. We need lots of different roles. The Levites weren't supposed to go, right, to, to, to go do X because they were doing Y. And the real dignity is when each of us realizes that we have our own ways of seeing things as well as our own, uh, the thing that the universe is calling each of us to do that only each of us can do. I don't need to do what Pam does. I don't need to worry about what she does and am I as good as that and am I doing that and why am I not doing that? I need to do what Amy needs to do. And I, my job is to figure out what the heck that is most of the time, right? Um, on work days, it's not always so easy. <laughs> Which of these things am I supposed to do? Um, and we read this right before Shavuot. Shavuot is Saturday. Erev Shavuot is Saturday night. So, um, so I'll close with the words of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Zatzal explains, there are some people who say, who am I and what am I? Even if I study Torah, I'll never reach a great level. Can I tell you there are so many people who don't want to come to this Torah study because they're intimidated? They've said this to me, countless people. I, I can't come. I've never learned Torah before. And those are really smart people. And they know a lot. And I'm like, and every one of them said at one point, I've never studied Torah. I know, Reuben. Can you imagine people would think that or say that? Um, even if I study Torah, I'll never reach a great level. Such an attitude leads them to negligence and laziness in study. 
We therefore read Parshat Bamidbar, which contains the census of the people of Israel in order to demonstrate that every Jewish person, great or not, is important and a part of that census. Each Jew is valuable and has a part in the Holy Torah, and only that person can give new Torah interpretations that their own soul received on Sinai. Therefore, the reading of Parshat Bamidbar encourages everyone uh, at this season of acquiring the Torah. So I offer that to you uh, as a gift from our uh, esteemed rabbis, from, in this case, the Igarot Moshe, uh, who teach that we were given Torah together on Sinai. Every Jew that ever would be, or converted to it, or married into it, or just adopting it, every single Jewish soul was at Sinai. And so we all received Torah, not just those who were there. And that any single perspective that's missing from the conversation takes something away. Something is absent from revelation. So let us each lean into our obligation to engage with Torah so that we can have a full revelation in our time. And may we each uh, do the discernment this Shabbat and Shavuot this weekend uh, about what our, what our job is. What is our role? Tif um, just not just count them. Give them roles. Give them things to be about in the world. And may we each figure out for each one of us what that is this year. May it be a happy and healthy uh, Shabbat and Shavuot for each of us. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.